Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you're transformed by the Word of God in the following message, and we trust that you're using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in the life of a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, What a privilege. You know, uh, this time last year, I was hoping to be here with you all. So some of you, I don't think I've met, but uh, it's good to see your faces. Some of you I have had the joy and privilege of meeting. Uh, I was hoping to be here last summer and to worship with you, gather with you all, to celebrate the gospel together, uh, to praise God. Uh, But unfortunately, uh, I had a passport issue. I uh, am from Great Britain. If you can't guess my accent, it's not Australian, it's British. Um, And I had sent my passport off to the UK uh, to be renewed. And unfortunately, it took four months. So I lost my summer last summer. Um, But one thing that came out of it that uh, I kind of am a little bit excited about, maybe more than I should be, is that I got one of the last printed uh, passports that say, Her Britannic Majesty. Um, Queen Elizabeth II passed away last year uh, after reigning on the throne of Britain for 70 years, which is obviously an astonishing feat to to reign over a country um, for 70 years. It's the end of an era. Um, It it, uh, was, as I, I did a little research, And it it appears to me with the the research that I did that she's not only the longest reigning British monarch, but uh, I think in modern era that it's, she's like the second longest reigning uh, monarch ever. Um, So that was something, you know, obviously uh, seeing her reign come to an end and and recently, I don't know if you guys were interested to watch it, but they uh, established King Charles. They did the coronation. There was a lot of pomp and circumstance to that. We'll see how his reign is. I'm not sure what his reign will be like yet, but hers was pretty decent. Uh, a lot of stability, you know, 70 years uh, reigning over a nation. Uh, and so I'm thankful for her. I think she may well have been a sister in Christ. She often talked about the Lord Jesus as her king uh, in her Christmas speeches. Um, but you know, that's, that's uh, not the case for many people in the church that I serve at. Um, they don't have the privilege of having someone who reigns fairly decently. And so, for example, a dear friend in our church uh, who's from Sudan. I don't know if you're uh, up to date with the news in Sudan, but there's actually civil war going on right now, a lot of violence. And so his family are there and they're suffering. Uh, as you can imagine, that's an incredible burden to him. He's in Dubai and trying to stay in touch regularly with his family, but they're living in uh, essentially a war zone. Uh, another friend in our church is from Nigeria. And, uh, and as I've gotten to know him and ask him about life in Nigeria and what brought him to Dubai, and if he intends to go back to Nigeria, he says that he, he would really rather never go back to Nigeria. And I, as I asked him, 
you know, oh, what makes you say that? What makes you feel that way? He says, you know, there's just so much corruption. The rulers, the leaders, uh, the politicians, they're just so corrupt. And it's devastating to uh, the society in Nigeria. I could tell you more friends from our church that are basically have many have moved to Dubai to escape bad rulers in the lands that they live. And as we'll see, as you guys have been seeing in the book of First and Second Kings, um, rulers matter a lot, right? They have a significant impact on the people that are under their rule. And as we'll see today, um, whether some for good or some for evil, uh, kings and queens and leaders, they matter. And so if you will, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 15, if you're not already there. I'm not going to read the whole chapter for us. It's quite a long passage, but you'll be benefited to have the Bible open in front of you. I'm going to read portions of it, but I'm also going to just point to some verses and some details there. So keep that open in front of you. Before we consider this passage, though, let's go one more time to the Lord and ask for him to uh, help us as we hear from him in his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would cause us to behold wonderful things in your word today. Lord, did you plant the seed of your word deep into the soil of our hearts and that by your gracious sovereign will that it might rise up and bear fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold all for the glory of your name, and in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So our passage, chapter 15 of 2 Kings, um, it opens and closes with a king of Judah. So we have a king in the first uh, seven verses there who reigns in Judah, and then we have a king in the last few verses from verse 32 onwards that's reigning in Judah. And so what we have is kind of like an Israel sandwich with Judah serving as the bread. As you guys have noticed, I'm sure, as you've studied uh, these, these passages over the last several weeks or months, you've seen that the author is kind of ping-ponging back and forth between the two nations and kind of unfolding the rules of different kings. And so here, sandwiched in between two Judean kings, we have five kings from the northern kingdom of Israel. And in telling the story of these kings, here in chapter 15 especially, the pace of the story is picking up as the story is speeding towards a conclusion, which you guys will hear in the coming weeks. But spoiler alert, the kingdoms run headfirst into ruin in exile. But what I want you to see from these seven kings here, this brief account of these seven kings, both from the north and from the south, is this. God keeps his word even when his kings didn't. God keeps his word even when his kings didn't. And so let's consider each kingdom in turn, beginning with the kingdom of Judah. So first we're going to see that, that the chapter opens and closes. And what we'll see is that Judah's compromised kings. 
we'll see Judah's compromised kings. So let's look at the opening verses of the chapter, verses 1 to 7. Let me read them for you. It says, In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. Not quite as good as Queen Elizabeth II, but he had a good long reign, right? 52 years. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, and are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Azariah slept with his fathers, And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. And so we see two kings of Judah frame this chapter, as I said. And the reason that we see that is because there was relative stability in the southern kingdom. As you've just heard, the author states that the relative stability right there in verse 2, we see it in that we're told that Azariah reigned for 52 years. And that's a decent long reign. And so there was relative stability in Judah at this time. In fact, Azariah's reign was longer than the five kings of Israel combined that we're going to consider. And verse 3 gives us the assessment of his reign. Where did this stability come from? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so far, so good, right? Seems like he's had a stable reign. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But verse 4 adds a very important caveat to the positive pronouncement of King Azariah. Look there in verse 4. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. It'd be easy to just fly over that verse and and not soak in it and not realize what it's telling us. But this indictment stands as a stain on Azariah's record. Yes, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but there's a stain You know, like when you put on a clean white shirt and then you get a drop of mustard or ketchup on it. It stands out, doesn't it? Or like that one D on an otherwise impressive report card that's filled with A's and B's. The king was called to keep God's word. He was called to lead God's people in keeping God's word. He was to write a copy of God's word for himself. And he was to read it all the days of his life. That was what Moses had instructed the people to do under God's command in Deuteronomy. 
And so the king's one job description was to keep God's word entirely. But Azariah compromised. And so in that way, this caveat, this nevertheless, it almost, not quite, but it almost empties the positive statement of meaning. You can't help but notice that yellow splotch on an otherwise perfectly white shirt, can you? But why was this so significant? Why was leaving these high places in place, why was that so important? Why was it so significant? Well, these high places were set up as an alternative worship site. And they were essentially spiritual strongholds for false religion, false worship. So at best, these high places were where people thought they were offering worship to Yahweh, the true and living God, the God of Israel and Judah, but were not keeping God's word about how they were to worship him. Rather than traveling the distance to the temple in Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices, they took a more convenient route. They went to the nearest high place and offered their sacrifices there. Thinking that they were pleasing God, really they were offending him with their own self-determined worship practices. And that's at best. But it's likely that they were beginning to wed the worship of Yahweh, their Lord, with the worship practices of the world around them. One commentator says, somehow the Old Testament people of God couldn't seem to shake the desire to adore Asherah, to bow before Baal, to cherish Chemosh, to make sacrifices to Molech and worship the rest of the local Canaanite gods. And so at best, it was worship in, in honor of Yahweh, but done wrongly. And at worst, it was like mixing syncretistic worship of different deities. Now, it doesn't seem as though Azariah was himself worshiping on the high places. But as the king, he was called by God to lead the people in faithful devotion to the Lord. And so he bore a special and unique responsibility to lead God's people in keeping God's word. But Azariah, as we've seen, he compromised. He didn't tear down the high places. And now if you skip down to his son, Jotham, there in verses 32 and following, you'll see his son is given the exact same commendation and the exact same compromise was made. Look down there at verses 34 and 35. Almost word for word. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Uzziah was another name for, for Azariah. Um, so he did all according to that his father had done. And nevertheless, the high places were not removed and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. The high places were not removed. He didn't keep God's word either. Like father, like son. 
Now, you all might be wondering, what does any of this have to do with me? You might be thinking, I'm not a king in Judah. I'm not uh, going to any high places uh, to worship any other false gods or uh, to try and worship the true God in some weird way on some mountaintop. Actually, Mark, you might be thinking, haven't you noticed I'm sitting right here in church listening to you? Praise the Lord. I'm so glad you are here. And this is a good place to be to worship the Lord. But there is a tendency, isn't there, in all of us, the tendency to compromise on keeping God's word entirely, just like Azariah, to settle for a lower standard than the one that God has established in his word. This is an especially dangerous temptation for us as leaders, leaders in the church or kings like Azariah, because when leaders compromise, on God's word, the effects are further spread and are increasingly damaging on those under our leadership. And you guys know this to be true. You know this to be true. You know when kings or leaders rule well, it blesses those under their authority. But when they lead poorly, it hurts everybody in the society. Just think about over the last few years, the vast number of Christian leaders who have fallen. I don't need to to mention them. I don't need to name them, but there's a a number of them. They've, They've fallen into sin. They've compromised in God's word and they've had to leave ministry. And in many cases, they haven't only made a shipwreck of their own faith, but have seriously damaged the faith of those under their leadership too. Maybe those who were led to the faith through their ministry. It has devastating effects. And so let me address for a moment Pastor Will and Pastor Eric. Let me warn you, let me encourage you to beware of the temptation to compromise and to ignore sin. Not to necessarily get involved in sin yourself, but to ignore sin that you see in the community. It must be rooted out. But let me also talk to the whole church here. And let me encourage you to pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. Pray for Pastor Will. Pray for Pastor Eric. Pray for these two men that God would lead them to be wholly devoted to himself and courageous to point out to be the leaders in helping to remove sin from the church when it's necessary. You know, to be honest with you, uh, I, didn't, I hadn't heard what uh, Pastor Eric was going to teach on fencing the Lord's table, but I just want to encourage you. I think that was an incredible example of uh, wanting to lead in a way that could be unpopular, saying truths that might be hard to hear, but in order to keep you being careful in devoting yourself to keeping God's word. It'd be easy for them to compromise and to ignore such things, but they want to lead you well. I see that. Even I've seen that this morning. Let me also encourage you as Lord willing, God 
provides more gifts of shepherds and elders in this church. I know you recently just appointed deacons in this church, and I'll pray that God would provide even more elders, even more deacons. And as you look for men who will lead you spiritually, as you look for shepherds in the church, look for men who are uncompromising in their devotion to the Lord. That's one of the main qualifications that we see in the scriptures about who to look for and to put into leadership. Not that they are smooth or that they're really business savvy or they're great uh, at any other sorts of things, but that they're uncompromised in their devotion to God. It takes a lot of courage for them to, to confront sin in the church, to preach against sin and to speak um, against what they see as uh, false uh, worship or false uh, obedience to Christ. And so pray for those men and uh, look for that in men that you might appoint as, as pastors in this church. But this warning was not just for the Judean kings. And it's not just for church leaders. This was written down as an example for us. It's for our instruction that we might not desire evil as these men did. And so don't compromise with sin. Destroy it. I'm sure, though, that I'm not the only one who at times is just content uh, to not fall into the most egregious sins, but I willingly ignore other sins in my life. That's where the temptation to compromise, compromise lies. Rather than put sin to death, it's, it's easy to just ignore some sins in our lives, isn't it? Just like these guys ignored the high places. You know how the thinking goes. It's something like this. You know, sure, sure, I, I laugh at those inappropriate jokes around the office. But everyone else is doing it. So it's not a big deal. Or I, I'm really bitter at that person, but it's, it's not like I'd ever physically harm them. More just fantasize about that. Or I know... I give myself to lusting, but at least I'm not sleeping around or cheating on my wife. And so it's not a big deal. No, brothers and sisters, these things are big deals. We must not compromise and not fight sin. We must be constantly repenting. And this meal that we're going to take uh, is a great reminder to do just that, to examine ourselves, to make sure we're reconciled with one another, to make sure we're fighting sin and trusting in Christ. We won't be sinless, but we must always be repenting of sin. We can come up with all kinds of see seemingly reasonable defenses to not deal with sin in our lives, but we mustn't do that. We mustn't compromise. We must kill sin. And so ask yourself this, maybe as you go from here today and reflect on the sermon, ask yourself, where am I tempted to compromise in keeping God's word? Don't ignore sin, destroy it, or it will destroy you. And we see that God takes keeping his word seriously. We see that God can't tolerate compromise among his people. Just look at verse 5 there of chapter 15. How did God respond? 
says the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death. And the author doesn't give us all the details. We can read about that in the book of Chronicles. But the message here, the detail that he gives is clear. The Lord took Azariah's compromised commitment to keeping his word seriously. And leprosy meant that he, the king, was ceremonially unclean. He couldn't go before God. And that he had to live, it says, in a, in a separate house. He was isolated. He was alone. And this is what the effects of sin have in our lives. They isolate us. They keep us away from the community of God's people. His sickness, this leprosy, serves as a symbol of the corruption that was spreading because of the sin that he allowed to fester and spread among God's people. All because he didn't keep God's word. Because he compromised and he ignored sin. But look further down. Look at his son, Jotham. In verse 37, right at the end of the chapter, he compromised just like his dad. And verse 37 tells us that in those days, Jotham, um, that the days that he reigned, the Lord began to send Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. Pekah was king in Israel. And so God touches one king with leprosy, and he sends enemies against the other. This was what God said would happen. Both of these things he said would happen if his people compromised, if they didn't keep his word. If they failed to keep his word, he would bring the curses of the covenant upon them. Here we see it in a personal way with King Azariah. And then we see it leading to corporate effects with King Jotham and the nations coming against Judah. And so what do we learn? What do we learn from these two Judean kings? We learn that God keeps his word. He brought the curses that he promised he would if they failed to keep his word. So God keeps his word even when his kings didn't, even when they compromised. We're seeing the cracks starting to form in the kingdom of Judah. And even these two kings, they weren't outright evil, right? Largely, they did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but they compromised in keeping God's word. And so the signs of the end of Judah begin to show. It's at this point, the outlook for Judah is pretty bleak, isn't it? Leprosy and enemies. But these two kings, they were actually angels in comparison to the kings in Israel. Israel's corrupted kings. And that's our second point. Israel's corrupted kings. We see that in the middle verses 8 through 31. And so these Judean kings on either side, they sort of frame this whole chapter and they serve as a way of highlighting just how bad the Israelite kings were. The relatively good, but albeit compromised leadership of Judah's kings serves as a stark contrast, emphasizing the utter corruption of these kings in Israel. And the author doesn't linger for very long on these five kings. 
He gives about, on average, five verses to each king. And most of those verses is spent with this kind of formula that you guys have heard already and are seeing where it tells us when they began their reign, how long they reigned for, an assessment of their reign, and then that they died. That's what most of the text is given to. And you might be wondering why. What's the point? It's quite repetitive. Well, what it does is it has this effect that I mentioned earlier of speeding up the story to show just how unstable Israel was. It's like a series of dominoes that topple. You know, have you seen those videos where you hit one domino and it suddenly cascades one, then the next, then the next, then the next, and they fall one after the other. And then usually there's a big pile of them at the end where the whole thing falls down and crumbles and it's scattered in rubble. And that's exactly where Israel is headed. That's the desired effect of giving these quick summaries of kings that were evil and what they did. Unlike Azariah, who served for 52 years, though he was in isolation with his leprosy, Zechariah, how long does he last? Look there in verse 8. He lasts six months. Not a very successful king, right? And Shalom, who comes after him, he lasts even less time. He only, lasts, he only manages one month on the throne. It's not looking good for Israel, is it? instability. Not only do these five kings have relatively shorter reigns, they are all but one given the same assessment. We see that repeated throughout. The assessment is the same for them all. It's like a chorus of a song that repeats throughout this chapter. But this is a chorus of corruption. Listen to how their reigns are summed up. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. And he did not depart from the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. It's repeated four times among these five kings. And the only time it's not mentioned is because Shalom didn't live long enough to have a reign to assess, really. One month he sat on the throne. So king after king after king is failing to keep God's word. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did not depart from the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Do you guys remember Jeroboam, the son of Nebat from earlier in this series? Probably a while ago now. This isn't the Jeroboam that Eric preached on last Sunday. He was Jeroboam the second. No, this was all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 12, he was actually the very first king of Israel. Do you remember what he did? He set up golden calves. How's that gone for Israel in the past? He set up his own personal priesthood that he decided how it ran. He led the people in idol worship. One commentary mentions the chorus that we hear repeated and says this, we read the tedious repetition of this name, the son of Nebat, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and we hear the tragic dominance of his influence throughout all of First and Second Kings. 200 years have passed since Jeroboam instigated his devious, devilish cult and its grip is undiminished. 
its poison is still lethal. And so rather than keeping God's word, these kings, just like all the kings of Israel, kept going in their sins and the sins of their fathers. And it's, it's worth taking a moment to point out here the, the obvious, obvious influence that we see that fathers have on their children. We see it throughout this chapter. We see it both for good and for evil. We see it good in Judah, though it was compromised, but there was, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And we see it in these kings that did evil. We saw it with Jotham. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And what did it say? According to all that his father had done. But right here in verse 9, it says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. And so it's not only kings who lead, it's not only pastors who lead, husbands and fathers do too. And so let me speak to the men in the room that are fathers in particular. How, how are you doing at leading your family in devotion to the Lord? You can lead your family in being devoted to the Lord in a lot of different ways. I'm not going to prescribe what family devos should look like for you or something like that, but you are having an influence on your children. What kind of influence is it? Sons see what really matters to their dads, and more often than not, those become the things that matter most to them. I see this when I'm watching Tottenham Hotspurs on TV and Charlotte shouts, go Spurs. I've never taught her to do that. She just picked it up from watching me. Maybe you're here and you're a man, but you're not a father yet. Let me ask you, what kind of trajectory are you setting now for if someday, Lord willing, God makes you a father? It's important to establish patterns of devotion to the Lord now. And so Zechariah walked in the corruption of his forefathers and he lasted only six months on the throne because in verse 10, we're told that Shalom, that's the guy who lasted six months, he conspired against him, struck him down and reigned in his place. And that's the end of Zechariah's dynasty. But look there at verse 12. This is a really important Verse the, the author interjects here to give us an explanation of what happened. Listen to what he says. This is really key. He says, this was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu. Your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. The author is actually here quoting himself from earlier in the book. And that word from the Lord that he refers to, we find that back in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, where God promised Jehu a four-generation dynasty. It's not as though it couldn't have been more than four generations if Jehu and his sons had kept God's word. It's quite possible it could have gone on longer if they had been faithful, but they didn't. And so it didn't last any longer than four generations. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, then this idea isn't new. It's not novel that God says something and so it came to pass. We see it in the very first chapter of the Bible that God speaks 
And it is so. It comes to be. But just think about it for a second. Think about this promise here. God had promised Jehu a four-generation dynasty. And even though Jehu's line was corrupt to the core, even though they were evil, even though they turned their back on God, and even though they bowed down to golden calves in place of God, and even though they led God's people into idolatry and sin, and even though they did all of that, God kept his word of promise and graciously gave them four generations on the throne. But then there was only six months and God said, it's over. It's amazing. It's sobering. God keeps his word. He was gracious even when his kings didn't keep his word. But once God had fulfilled his promise, he removes his hand of protection and Zechariah lasts only six months and he's killed at the hands of Shalom. And the dynasty comes to an end. The fact that God always keeps his word, it's so basic to Christianity, isn't it? It's so basic to us, it just almost seems redundant to say it. But God keeping his word is what should fuel us to keep his word. God keeping his promises, even his promises of judgment, but especially his promises of grace and salvation, should fuel us to keep his word, to obey him. When we remember both his promises and the warnings that he gives, we ought to commit ourselves to obeying and keeping God's word. But these kings only continued in their corruption. Unlike the kingdom of Judah, where the cracks are starting to show, Israel is actually starting to crumble and fall apart under the judgment of God. Let me show you how we see that. Among these five kings that are mentioned here in 2 Kings 15, we have four conspiracies. It's almost like it's, <laughs> it's a prerequisite to being king in Israel at this point is that you're an assassin too. Shalom killed Zechariah there in verse 10. And then Shalom lasts just a month before he's killed by Menahem in verse 14. And then Pekaliah is introduced in verse 25. And the only thing that we hear about him is that he only reigned two years. And then Pekah, the captain of his army, killed him in a military coup. And lastly, in verse 30, Pekah gets a dose of his own medicine. And he's killed by Hosea. Hosea, as you'll learn in just a couple weeks, is the last king of Israel. God's kings are all killers. This is dark, dark days for Israel. One conspiracy after another until the whole kingdom is conquered and dragged into exile. All according to God's word. Because God keeps his word even when his kings didn't. As one commentator said, Israel's chaos is a sign that God is in the process of destroying her. 
God was keeping his word to judge his people when they failed to keep it. And we see the corruption manifest not only in these conspiracies, but even in the, this is even darker. We're getting even darker in the description here, but in the ruthless reigns that these kings had too. Look in verse 16. At that time, Menahem sacked Tephsah and all who were in it and its territory to from Tirzah on because they did not open it to him. And therefore he sacked it and ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant. It's unspeakable, unthinkable. Can you imagine anything more disturbing and dark? This is God's people. This is God's king killing his own and the most vulnerable. This is where the corruption of sin has led God's king. Rather than reigning in peace and justice, he's devouring his own people. This specific place that's mentioned here, you probably don't remember it. But if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 4 verse 14, I'll just read it for you now. But we're speaking of the beginning of Solomon's reign. It says, that Solomon had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tipsa to Gaza. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety. What a reversal. Peace on every side to this. The king marches in. And kills pregnant women? All because they were failing to keep God's word. Menahem's evil, it didn't stop there. We see in verses 19 through 20 that he made a huge tax on the people, the richest people, to pay off the king of Assyria. Rather than turning to the Lord and trusting that the God of heaven and earth would protect them, he goes to his, he robs essentially from his riches citizens to pay off the king of Assyria, all in a foolish attempt to keep power and control. Not only is he worshiping idols on the high places, he's worshiping control. He's worshiping authority and power. And by the time we get to Pekah, uh, Israel's end is inevitable. Look there at verse 29. In the days of Pekah, the king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon, Abel-Beth-Makkah, Janoam, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee. All the land of Naphtali. He conquered a whole tribe of God's people. And he carried the people captive to Assyria. What we see here in verse 29 is just, it's just a preview. It's a trailer of the judgment that's going to come in full force in chapter 17. Assyria is beginning to conquer corrupt Israel. All because they persist in their rebellion. All because they continue to refuse to keep God's word. And as severe as all of these signs are, As severe as this, this should have been clear 
to the kings and to the people of what was going on, they keep running down the road to ruin rather than turning back to the Lord their God. They're so blind, they don't see what's happening. It's almost ridiculous. Parts of the kingdom are falling off, but they keep going full-blown ahead instead of stopping and thinking, wait a minute, what are we doing here? You know what this made me think of? Have you uh, seen the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Give me a nod if, you, if you've seen that. So I know that, okay. Do you remember the scene where King Arthur, it's a, it's a comedic British film if you haven't seen it. It's a bit, it's satirical. It's a little strange and a little dark, like this passage in some ways. But do you remember the scene between King Arthur when he fights with the Black Knight? Comes face to face with the Black Knight. King Arthur commands the Black Knight, step aside and let me pass. The Black, side, Black Knight says no. He refuses. And so they begin this, this furious fight and King Arthur, their, their, their swords are clashing. The Black Knight puts up a little bit of a fight, but King Arthur is clearly superior and he delivers a serious blow. He chops the arm off the Black Knight. You guys remember this? You remember that? He says, now stand aside, worthy adversary. But how does the Black Knight respond? He's missing an arm And he looks at his shoulder and he says, "'Tis but a flesh wound. I've had worse." It's even better in a British accent, isn't it? (laughs) The fight continues and King Arthur continues to fight. And of course, now the Black Knight has one arm, but he still continues to use this other arm for his sword. He keeps coming. Arthur cuts his other arm off. Now he has no arms. He says, just a flesh wound. I'm invincible. King Arthur says, you're loony. You're insane. It's plain to everyone except the Black Knight that he's lost. Even going so far as losing both his legs, it's ridiculous. But he still fights. And we laugh. We laugh. But sin works just like that in our own souls. Doesn't it, brothers and sisters? Sin keeps us from seeing the madness and the folly of standing against God. And sometimes God lets us bear the painful consequences of our sin, doesn't he? And sometimes we fail to see those signs that that are intended to turn us back from our wicked ways. We still fight against him. We rebel. Israel's kings are killing one another. Whole parts of the kingdom are being chopped off just like the Black Knight's limbs. But rather than repent and turn to the Lord, Israel plows ahead into ruin. Now, what does all of this have to do with us? We're neither Israelites in the 8th century BC. We're not the exiles in the 6th century BC who were the original recipients of the book of Kings. You know, for them, it was a a firm reminder of how they had ended up in exile. It was proof to them. The book of Kings is saying, God didn't fail you, you failed God. God hasn't failed in keeping his word, you have failed in keeping his word. 
And so for them, it was a reminder of how sobering and serious sin is. It wasn't that God had failed them. It was that they had, led by compromised and corrupt kings, had failed him. God kept his word, even when his kings didn't. And that's why they are there. That's why they're sitting in exile. And so this serves as a sober warning to you and I that we must not compromise in keeping God's word, that we must not rebel against God, that we must turn and commit ourselves to him. But it was also a reminder that they needed a faithful king. It was a reminder that they needed someone who would lead them not into idolatry, but into faithfulness, into righteousness, into justice. God has provided just such a king. Not like these compromised kings of Judah who kept most of God's word, but not all of it, who ignored some of the sins of the people, who let them continue in their idolatrous ways, nor was he like these corrupt kings of Israel, these violent, malicious kings who even killed their own people. No, Jesus gave up his life for his people. He laid down his life for his people. Jesus was uncompromising in his devotion to God the Father. And Jesus was uncorrupted by the stain of sin, not one drop. Jesus was unfailing to keep God's word in every way possible, even obeying to death on a cross in the place of sinners. And it was by sending King Jesus that God keeps his word. His word to save his wayward people and his word to judge the sin of his people. Jesus willingly took the judgment for his people, the judgment that they deserved so that those who had failed, those who had walked away from keeping God's word or had half-heartedly compromised in keeping God's word, or had outright rebelled and corrupted themselves against God's word, could turn to him and be saved. Jesus died the death that we deserve, and he rose again triumphant from the grave, securing the hope of eternal life for any and all who would trust in him and put their faith in him. We read about it earlier in our confession of faith question. It's only by faith in Jesus Christ. It's only by faith in his substitutionary atoning death on the cross that we might be saved. Jesus willingly took that for us. He died in our place and he rose again. And so friends, whether you've lived an outright rebellious life, like these corrupt kings, or merely a life of half-hearted devotion to God, there is hope for you. Jesus offers you his perfect record of righteousness, his perfect record of keeping God's word. And he offers you forgiveness for all the ways that you failed and will fail. All you must do is turn for living for yourself and trust in him. But brothers and sisters, as good news as that is, it's even better because Jesus doesn't merely save us from the consequences of sin. He calls us to follow him. He calls us to allow him to lead into increasing devotion to God. 
Through his death, we've been set free from sin to keep God's word, to obey. We don't obey to be saved, but the saved keep God's word. Through his death, we've been set free. And through the gift of his spirit, we can now keep God's word. And so we've seen that God always keeps his word. Even when his people haven't. God's word will stand no matter what. Either his word to judge the compromised and the corrupt. Or his gracious word to save and deliver those who turn and trust in him. Who keep the word of his gospel to believe, to repent, to follow, and to allow him to lead us into righteousness. And that is good news, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise as a God who speaks and a God who always keeps his word. Lord, we praise you that In your righteousness and justice, you call us to live holy and righteous and blameless lives. And Lord, we we praise you that you even speak in your word and, and you've promised that you will judge sin, evil. Lord, we're thankful that you've spoken a word of grace and salvation. That even though we have failed to keep your word, Jesus has done that for us and now enables us and transforms us so that we might obey you, that we might keep your word. We praise you for King Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by God's word. And for more information about joining us for a worship service or taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.